Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. Oh, and I'm Tobias Mayer. Hi. So today we're going to be talking about self-organization, servant leadership, and related topics. And we've got Tobias on because he's been writing about this for a long time from a, a Scrum perspective. I've read your blog and I've just been reading your book. So tell us a little bit about your background and where you you came from, how you got here and who you are. Big questions, Murray, big questions. Well, as I said, my name's Tobias and I've been working in the uh, Agile space since, wow, it's quite difficult really. I came across XP in 1998 when I was a student studying software engineering, which was a very late life change for me. I was in my mid thirties when I went back to school and began studying this stuff. And, and during the course of my research there, I came across extreme programming. Uh, when I was studying software process and I loved it. It just resonated immediately with me. And uh, when I moved to the States in 1999 and got my first uh, computer job, I wasn't really able to implement any of it in the companies I was at, but I kept staying tuned into it, read the book and uh, was looking for opportunities. And around 2004, I started to look for ways to manage people because I didn't like the way I had been managed for the most part. And uh, I came across Scrum. I was on the XP forums and I kept hearing this thing about Scrum. So I started looking into it and it sounded like a really good way of organizing people. At that point, I think I had nine reports doing stuff that I was only vaguely tuned into and I didn't really know how to manage them because the management to me was telling people what to do. And I couldn't tell these guys what to do because they were all smarter than me. So I, I had to find a way of releasing their expertise. And that's really what Scrum taught me to do. Initially, Scrum was a way of successfully working with people and allowing people their own greatness and not feeling like I had to own it and be in charge. So I was able to draw on that. And also a lot of background in the theater as well. In the, in the theater, you kind of just do what needs to be done backstage theater work. So again, it's self-organization. It, most of it, you might have someone who's nominally in charge, but everyone steps up, does what they can. And that's what I wanted in terms of the software teams I was working with. And that's really what drew me into the scrum world. And Tobias, I saw that you worked as a social worker with troubled youth, didn't yeah. you? I left school when I was 16 and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I really disliked school. I didn't enjoy it and had no uh, aspirations to go to college. So I just kind of wandered for quite a number of years from job to job. And, and I sort of fell into working on those uh, government training schemes back in the late eighties, early nineties. And from there, I just moved into different things. I worked at the refugee council for a while, helping refugees find a place in the country they landed in. So you've got Ethiopian farmers trying to figure out how to make a living in Brixton. And it was quite challenging. And uh, I was running training courses and supporting people on a one-to-one -one basis. So it was a bit all over the place, really, my, my background, but all of it was pertinent. It all kind of ties together in the stuff that I do today. So. We wanted to talk to you about self-organization because I can see from your writings that that's very important to you. Yeah. Do you think that you could do agile without self-organization? Would you still be doing agile or scrum? I, I don't think so. We use that term as if it's a, a weird new fangled management thing. Well, in fact, it's what we do all the time. We organize ourselves as individuals within a family group, within a social group. 
within pretty much any context, really, except work. When we go to work, we, we're no longer given the permission to do that. We have to be reporting to people and being reviewed and assessed and told we're not good enough or we're good and get a bonus for that. We're treated like parents who don't know how to parent treat children, I would say. That's how we're treated. Really quite tragic, you know. I wouldn't treat my children the way that a lot of organisations treat their employees. So we are self-organised beings. That's how we function. That's how we do great things. And so all we have to do is let people do it. Now, people often ask me, how do I motivate my people? And the only answer I have for them is to stop doing the things that demotivate them. We will naturally be motivated to do work that we enjoy doing. And if we don't enjoy it, we shouldn't be doing it. We should look for something else. But we are impeded all the time by people thinking they're motivating us with rewards and accolades of one kind or another and the control that's sort of imposed on it you know when people set ridiculous deadlines they talk about it as having us to step up to the challenge but all of those things demotivate people if you can't achieve anything you're not going to be motivated so we have to stop doing the things that demotivate people and allow people to step into their brilliance it's really as simple as that but it's so hard to do because we're so used to not doing it so it's important yeah can't not be what I see a lot these days is Agile being treated as a new process. You know, you get McKinsey and the big consulting groups talking about their Agile program management office that is going to centrally define all of the Agile processes. Mm. I, I once went and talked to a head of Agile for a bank who said that their role was to define all of the Agile processes and then make everybody stick to them. Yeah, make them stick to them. I know. Yeah. Yeah, they don't see the, the, the sort of paradox, do they, uh, quite often. You can't be agile if you nail things down. Uh, how can you be? If you glue your feet to the floor, you're not going to be very agile. That's pretty much what they do with these procedures and processes. I've heard that too a lot. We need to nail this down. They use those, those actual words. We need to roll this out across the whole organization. So we need to document it effectively. And I say, what are you rolling? What is being rolled out here? This is like doing as little as possible, not as much as possible. I always point them back to Kent Beck's lovely statement, how little can we do and still create great software? It's one of my favorite, favorite phrases. What would you say is the state of management these days? How common is this authoritarian type of management? It's not all negative. Management is an important role in an organization. I'm certainly not anti-management. I think there have been in the past. I think in the early days of Agile, there was a sort of like, let's, let's fire all the managers kind of approach. Uh, Google did actually attempt that back in the early 2000s. They got rid of most of their managers. And then the developers complained until they hired a bunch of new ones. But the style of management, that's what we go back. We don't want managers to manage people. We want managers to manage environments. The manager's job is to create environments that people can excel in. Environments that will allow people's natural abilities to come out. They don't need to be told what to do or controlled in any way at all, really. They need to be given space. So a manager's job is to do that. We don't have many managers who've learned how to do that. I went to school for four years to become a software engineer. and. Then they wanted to make me into a manager. Now, okay, I've never trained as a manager. I've never done any management courses. So they sent me on a half day, become a manager thing. And now they suddenly expect me to be a great manager. 
They gave me a book actually that they gave Marcus Buckingham, who's become quite well known since then, and it was called First Break All the Rules. So I did that, by the way, and they fired me. And I kept, they said, you're breaking the rules. I said, I've got this book that you gave me. So <laughs> we need managers. Uh, we need good environment builders. And I think there's a, for me, that's when the sort of role of um, scrum master and manager integrate or cross over. Like a really good manager is like a scrum master. It's someone who confronts the organization, supports the workers, and creates environments where people want to be. That's a good manager. You asked what the nature of management is at the moment. I think the nature of management is largely one of fear. It's the Peter principle that we see playing out all the time. People are promoted to their level of incompetence and then they're afraid because they don't know what to do and they don't want people to know. And so they bluster and they lie. What I found working with organizations is the higher up people are in the organization, the less willing or even able they are to learn anything. So they won't come to the classes and workshops, they send people to my trainings, but they won't come because they can't be seen to not know because they got promoted on the basis that they know stuff. That's why you've got to have executive scrum, Tobias. Executive scrum, and then you do a special class. They might come there, might they? but even then I don't think they would. I've had so many times I've had people say, well, I don't need to go. I know, I understand scrum. I'm bringing you in because I understand this, but... Agile to a lot of people means everyone should do what I want them to do whenever I want them to do it. That's agility. You know, I change my mind, keep up. That's agility. That's what people think it is. What do you think the state of Agile is from observing it or talking to people on your courses? I don't think it's changed that much over the years. What, what has changed is it's become more well-known. There's less resistance to it. In the early days of teaching Scrum, there was a huge amount of resistance. You really had to negotiate that with people and ask them to leave their skepticism at the door just for a day or two, just so we can learn something new and then bring it back in. I like people to be skeptical. I like them to be challenging. I don't want people to just comply to this stuff. Defeats the point, doesn't it? But I see less of that now. People are just, this is what everyone else is doing. We have to do it. It's not new anymore. But I don't think that it's changed in any other way very much. I think that just like you described, the big organizations want to turn it into process. They want to put their agile PMO together and we want scrum masters to be line managers and they want product owners to be just like business analysts, there's still disempowerment. So I don't think the state of agile has changed, but the last long-term corporate role I had was in 2015. Was in quite an extensive one with a large organization. It was a branch of a large organization. And it was a disaster what they were trying to do with SAFE. They, I didn't directly work with that, but they had been sold SAFE. And, you know, they would have these mega 12 week planning and fly people in from Argentina and wherever. And then the very next day, the plan fell apart because. The, the software was so broken that they were constantly fielding uh, complaints. So it's just a waste of time. But whenever I go into an organization, I always find people in those organizations that I just love working with. And that's the bit that makes it meaningful. I kind of came to the realization quite a number of years ago now that I will never transform an organization. I won't even probably make a dent in it. Never have really, but. 
if one person wakes up to a new way of thinking and working and maybe leaves that broken company and finds a better job, then I would count that as success. There's so much value in the human aspect of this because some people are really desperate to discover new ways of doing things and just haven't been shown anything. They just don't know that there's another way of working from apart from what they've got. And when their eyes are open to the light, it's, there's no turning back. They then have to pursue it. Whether you pursue it by the name of Scrum or Kanban or Lean or, or, or just none of those things. It's just, there are better ways of working and there are better ways of building relationships in the workplace than we currently have. Yeah, I can echo that, that comment about helping a team. Going in and helping a team be successful, watching the team change the way they work, helping the team find more success and having more fun in their jobs. I think that's a great outcome for a coach to achieve with that team, but going in to transform an organization from the top where that organization's been hierarchical and command and control for many years, is that really going to motivate you? Have you got a chance of success to do that? Is it really going to change to become self-organizing, not that command and control structure? And I question whether anybody's actually managed to make a company flip on a dime and change the way the company behaves. There's certainly many claims on there and a lot of case studies around that, but often when you follow those things up, the change is brittle. One of the problems is there's a change of, of leadership. The champion decides to move on and someone else comes in. Now they may also um, be of the same mindset, but it's unlikely. So they come in and they want to put their own stamp on things. They want to say, I am me, and this is different to what you had before. This is going to be better. And they look at the agility and they say, this is nonsense, this stuff, and let's not do this. You know, I've got much better processes and procedures. We need a bit of discipline around here, you know? And so it all gets thrown out the door. And the Yahoo story with that was no scrum, big major push into scrum. A new person comes along, drops it all out again, rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. New person comes in, up it goes. And then more recently, the CEO decided that Agile was a cult and didn't want to do it anymore. So. All these people who were hired to do these roles suddenly find themselves with no role. And that's a, it's not unique to that company by any means. This is quite a common story. At any point in time, we could have said, this is really successful. We've got these great teams working there. They love what they're doing. We've done these surveys and we've got this feedback and products are going out faster. But then you come back in six months time and it's different. Yeah, I've certainly seen that myself. I have transformed an organization that had about 80s or so people and turned around profitability as a manager of, of managers, but that was only because they were in trouble and there was strong leadership support to do something different at the time. Mm. But then a couple of years later, after we succeeded, the leadership support disappeared because they got interested in other things. And yeah. then other people started to come in who didn't understand it weren't interested, wanted to put their own stamp on. And we started going back to bureaucratic management. And then after that strong arm management, the manager's got to be a hero. The manager's got to be this tough commander and everything's all about loyalty. Are you loyal? And I think that often managers do that because they don't know any better. They see that in movies and they think that's what you got to do. And they probably get it from their parents as well. So if you have parents who are tough and controlling and dysfunctional, then I reckon that's what you're going to be like as a manager. That's quite likely, isn't it? We need 
therapy for managers? You know, what I work really is, uh, and it has been for a long time, on simply right relationships. That's it. It's right relations. That's what we want in the workplace. And we don't have that for the most part. We have very dysfunctional relationships, very power-oriented relationships, very fear-based relationships. A lot of people walk into work with a sense of dread, of fear or disengagement. I don't want to be here. I want to be somewhere else. I can't stand this person. Is he going to bug me again? The bullying that goes on in the office and the isms that are all over the place and now they become covert um, because it's not okay anymore. But it's still there. There's so much dysfunction in, in companies and the larger the company, the more that seems to be true. Now, of course, there are exceptions to this. When I say I've never transformed an organization, that could speak just poorly of me, couldn't it? I'm sure there are many people out there who've done fantastic work. I know some people who've done a lot of work. I just also know that if you look closely after a period of time, like you described, Murray, the change is not necessarily that robust. But there are some great things. People like Heinrich Niebuhr, they make a lot of videos about the work that they've done. But then you hear stories from the people who work in those companies, and it's not so rosy. But it doesn't mean to say that one is lying and the other is telling the truth. I think there's just different perspectives on these things. Personally, I've been following him for a few years a man called Ahmed Fahmi, and his stuff is great. I mean, he's, his work is really interesting. The last one he made was focused on management, sort of Gemba management, you know, it's like being there and yeah, you should see it. It's great. And I think that, you know, so he's also someone who's kind of brought me around to the idea of the power and the, the necessity of good management. What do you think about the idea of imposition? Daniel Mezik writes a lot about this, the imposition of agile, the imposition of scrum, you will be transformed and resistors will be asked to leave that sort of thing. It's horrible, isn't it? I mean, he's right. And I like Dan a lot. I like his work. He's a hardcore, passionate man, Dan Mezik is, and uh, he speaks it out. He's like the proverbial court jester. He says, speaks truth to power. And I think that he's right in, in pretty much everything he observes and says, it should always be by invitation. Any change you make anywhere ever should always be by invitation. As soon as you start to impose, and this is true of raising children as well, as soon as you try to impose your way on them without clarity of understanding of the why, then you're going to fail. It's going to come back and hurt you. Can you actually make people do anything? Can you actually control people as managers always seem to try and do? Well, you can. Up to a point, can't you? prison guards get to control prisoners to a great extent, but they also breed hatred when they do that. So there's always unintended consequences of these things. You can control people, but why on earth would you want to? Now, what value is it? You can control them, but you're not going to get much from that. We work in the creative space. We make new things that have never been made before. There's no way you can do that if someone's hovering over you telling you what to do and how to do it. That will never happen. The kind of products we make are going to be safe and boring failures. So it's really imperative that people in our space get that. The best work is done, says it in the Agile Manifesto, by self-organized teams. The best architectures, the best uh, designs are made by self-organized teams not by some expert. Now, Jeff Sutherland 
wrote a book called Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time. So is that what Scrum is about, productivity and efficiency? I'd like to think that the publisher came up with that title, not Jeff Sutherland himself, because I don't think that Jeff sees that Scrum as being there. You know, it's twice the value in half the time might be a bit more accurate for Scrum. We want to produce good, high-quality work, and we don't want to have to burn ourselves out to do it. Now, I don't want to do twice the work. I want to do half the work and get twice the value. So self-organizing teams, right? It's a good theory, but... It, it's hard to execute. Organizations don't really want to empower their people. Managers are taught to manage tasks and manage people. They're not taught to lead. They're not taught to create a culture to enable people to be successful. They're not taught to let go and let the experts do the jobs and remove the blockers or the barriers or do the things that help their team achieve. They're often focused on their own personal achievement. So yeah. what are some of the techniques to help a team start their journey of becoming self-organized? Well, as little as possible, really, I think is the answer to that. People are naturally skilled at solving problems. What we do in the software world is solve problems. That's what we do. We solve problems and we use code to do that, write code to solve problems. And we can't solve problems if the problem isn't well articulated. So a product owner's job <clears throat> or a manager's job is to articulate the problem by talking to the people who have the problem and understanding it and working with the people who are doing the response to the request to allow them to understand that so they can then go ahead and figure out a way of doing that. But what we get is managers and product owners thinking they understand the problem, not bothering to relay it. So people are working visionless and goalless very often and just told to write this function to do this thing without really understanding the big picture. That's very demotivating. So what do we need to do apart from doing as little as possible and explaining why we're doing something? Is that all that we need to do? Well, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But it's, it's really not about doing more things. We do too much already, managers, all of the tracking sheets we have and recording people's time and doing dependency chart, Gantt charts, and you know, all these things that are supposed to improve productivity and actually have the complete opposite effect. The rule of bad management is if something's not working, do more of it. And that's what we get in, in many companies. We just keep trying to do the same thing over and over again, and it just still doesn't work. But we have to do less. We really have to do less. If you don't know what to do with the people who report to you, ask the people. It's really that simple. You know, if my children are upset, uh, I'm not going to go and talk to some child expert about my children. I'm going to ask my child why they're upset. What's going on? And why can't we just have that level of, of humanity in our workplaces? Sometimes we'll see a scrum coach where, yeah, they go in to help a team and somebody will ask a question and they, they say, it yeah, depends. Yeah. And I'm not a great fan of that, right? For me, that's a cop-out. There needs to be some leadership, but there has to be a balance between leadership that helps the team succeed and control freaks that tell them what to do. So how, how do you deal with that with a team when you want them to start being self-organizing, but you don't 
want to put a whole lot of structure and controls around them because they are experts. They just need room to breathe and, and ways to grow into that role where they've never been empowered. I mean, right. how do you give them that umbrella and guidance without just going, ah, you, you'll work it out eventually. That's not a good approach at all, is it? Self-organization is nothing without purpose and boundaries. If you don't have purpose and boundaries, you cannot ask people to self-organize. They'll just become mess. It'd become anarchistic and nonsense. You know, where are they going? They have no idea where you're going. If you just leave the house and you have no idea where you're going, you're just going to wander aimlessly. So purpose and then boundaries and limits around that. And I think that what managers can do is, is create the environment for that. So we've got five people we've engaged and they've all got different skills because we need the you know, design skills and coding skills and testing skills to build this product. So rather than putting together a rotor of who's going to do what, when you say, here's the problem, here's a room, set it up how you like, work the hours that best suit you. So long as it's in agreement with your other team members. And by the end of two weeks, you need to solve this particular problem. And then in two weeks time, I'm going to give you another problem to solve. That's what a manager needs to do. It's really as simple as that. And if you need help, ask me, that's the third part of it. If you need help, ask me. Apart from that, there's not that much more. But if you start off doing that and you haven't got a purpose or a vision or a goal at least set for that, then people won't know what to do. So you say, this is the vision. This is the goal, the product goal, the sprint goal. This is the problem we're trying to solve towards that goal. And I trust that you will know what to do to solve this problem. And if you're comfortable doing this in two weeks, then let's have it in two weeks. And if you're not comfortable, let's talk about that now. And the team will then have some input. What should a self-organizing team do if somebody on the team is lazy, can't be bothered, doesn't do the work? Spends half their day organizing their trip to Italy and talking to their friends and not producing. So it depends, <laughs> Shane, it depends. In this case, I think it depends on who else is in the team. It depends on what the relationships are like between those people. Is this someone who's been thrust at the team? Now, self-organizing teams do have coaches, usually. Sometimes that's a scrum master, sometimes an agile coach or sometimes just a very good manager. So there are people that you can talk to about the problems that you're having. You're not isolated, you're not left on your own. There's also the encouragement to get people to talk to each other about it. So in the retrospective, if people want to talk about what we did well and what we didn't do well, and they might also want to talk about what each other did well and what each other didn't do well. And I say, I'm frustrated because I felt that you were not meeting the commitments you made. Now to have that kind of conversation, you've got to have a safe environment to do it in. And that's where the scrum masters and managers come into this. This is about going back to creating the environment, but it's, no one does that kind of behavior for no reason. If I'm paid to do a job and I'm not doing the job, but I'm skiving off, that can't possibly be making me happy because I know that I'm cheating and I'm lying and I'm lazy and people are going to find me out. So all of those things are going on for that person. So we start by approaching that person with kindness and trying to find out more. That's all. That's all you can do is find out more what is going on. I've had people on teams who do that and it's because they didn't want to be on the team. They don't want to be doing scrum. They want to just be a team or a group where people are telling them what to do. 
so they know where they stand, you know. Or they want a team of people they have no respect for, no trust for. So are we talking about servant leadership here? Is that what managers and scrum masters should be striving for? It's a combination of that and what you might call emergent leadership. So within a self-organizing team, they're not leaderless. Some people use the term leaderful, I like that, leaderful team full of leaders, but they lead when appropriate only. So people step into leadership as and when needed. You know, someone who's got you know, a bit more skill or perhaps a background in conflict resolution is able to step forward when that, that's necessary. Someone who's uh, got a good background in art, software architecture is going to step into a leadership position when we need to do some architecting or same with testing. There's a servant leadership element from the people outside of the team, the people caring for and supporting the team are coming at it from this servant leadership perspective. It's leadership through caring for the other person rather than directing them. But then within the team, you've got leadership that emerges as needed. So you, you mentioned there about emergent leaders and this idea that at the right time, the right person from the team steps forward, leads for the period they need to lead, and then steps back until somebody else takes the reins because yeah. they're the most skilled or the most available or the best person to do that at that time. And that requires a high level of trust. And yeah. so what I find is when you start working with a team and they've been in a hierarchical command and control organization or under a command and control manager, they, they don't have a trust of the organization anymore. They don't have the trust of their management or leadership team. And they typically have gotten to a stage where they often don't trust their peers or their teammates. Do you find that? Do you find that there's actually a period of time where the team need to build that sense of trust because without it, really, they're not going to be able to organize themselves? Yeah, it's a slow process, isn't it? And if you're bringing history into this, you've got people who've worked together in the past under a different system and they haven't enjoyed it. They don't like each other or they don't trust each other or they don't have respect for the work of the others you have a very difficult start how do you form a team in the first place teams form teams so the individuals form the team no one else tells who's going to be in which team so you, you get a much better chance of success if people are working with people they want to work with 50 people can organize themselves into five or seven teams we need purpose right we need to what what are the teams like the teams must have this set of skills Maybe there's 10 different skills that that team needs. It doesn't mean you need 10 people. It means you need all the people with the skills. So you need you need this many teams. The maximum size of a team is minimum size is set. Skill set is set. And now figure out how you can organize yourselves into teams within those boundaries. And it works. It just works. You know, it really does. But if you've got managers sitting around scratching their head, trying to put the right people together to make the perfect team, all kinds of dysfunction comes out of that. You know, people don't necessarily know who gets on with who else, or uh, they, they're putting their own preferences into it. So self-organization needs to start right from the get-go. Actually, the, how does the team form? By self-organization, model it. Tobias, I wanted to ask about the link between servant leadership and Christian teachings, because I see you write about that in your LinkedIn posts. Tell me more about that. In the Gospels, it talks about Jesus as being someone who attracts people to him because they want the same things that he wants. And in Mark's Gospel in particular, reads like a political manifesto for change. 
And so what we've got here is a movement, an uprising of a small group of, of fishermen who don't like the way they're being treated by the governing authorities. I actually teach a one-day workshop on organizational change, just using that gospel, because there's so much in there about how we hold ourselves and how we manage ourselves and how we see transformation. It's a really rich text for that. So for me, there's definitely all kinds of interleaving between scripture and the kind of work that I want to do. I'm, you know, I'm not rising to persuade other people to believe what I believe. I'm not even sure what I believe, but what I do know is that the book itself is rich in lessons that we can learn in today's world, not just for the workplace, but for all kinds of other things as well. And so my exercise was to try and tease out for myself, like what's relevant here? What can I, what can I apply from these teachings to my life today? And it was a really interesting exercise to do. And this year I'm recording them, doing the, the audio versions in the mornings. But yeah, I think that, you know, people shy away from a lot of those kinds of texts. And it's probably the same with the Quran. I'm sure, I, I haven't read that, but I'm sure that there's many similar lessons that we can draw there. What about the relationship between self-organizing teams and anarchism? Because you did say you were a scrum anarchist at one time. Agile anarchy. I had a blog called Agile anarchy at one point. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. There's some stuff in the book about that, actually. I mean, it, people get the idea that if you're an anarchist, you're anti-government and it's really not that. Anarchists are not against government. They're against coercive government. So against coercion. So an anarchist is very much someone who wants their voice to be heard or wants to be involved in the decision-making process. And that's what we want in the agile world, isn't it? We want people who are skilled at the work they do to have a voice and to have that voice heard. You know, if you just something as something as simple as the planning poker game, what the planning poker game is about is about listening to the minority voice. That's the purpose of the game, right? It's not about coming up with the right number. It's about having decent conversations with your peers and allowing the minority voice to matter. You know, when you're um, estimating um, work using that technique, it's not a democratic process. You're not saying if we've got five people saying this and one person saying that he's outvoted. We do the opposite of that. We say, oh, there must be something really important that that person knows that we don't know, or there must be some information they're missing that we all have. So let's close that gap. Well, that's the power of, of hearing the minority voice. We get back into alignment and we learn things from one another. So all those people doing that practice, they're like anarchists essentially, because they're just saying that I matter, I matter. My decisions as part of this group matter. There you go. How do we scale up? What if we're running Spotify and it's such a big product that we need 5,000 people working on it? Well, how do you know you need 5,000 people? The way of scaling Scrum is to start with one team. That's it. You start with one team on one part of the product or one product. It's almost like treating the team as a seed and allowing the seed to grow. And your job as a manager is to nurture that plant and to let it propagate if it needs to. So if it needs to drop seeds and create new teams, 
uh, allow it to do that. If it needs particular resources to make it grow better, supply those resources. That might be hiring a new person to join the team. It might be offering some skills training. But the scaling has to come from the root. It can't be imposed top down. So we scale through emergence rather than design. And this is scary, right? There's often a lot of criticism of Scrum and Scrum teams from software architects and designers who say that you need to have a big picture so that everybody can work on something together. You, you, you do need a big picture, but it doesn't have to be in the level of detail that many architects would like it to be at. Architects get very married to their architectures before we've even tested the product out in front of real human beings. We have no idea if it's the right architecture for it. Now we can bring good practice into this, of course, and we've, if things work before, they might work again. But uh, until we really understand the product that we're making and the market we're making it for, we can't really architect things ahead of time. This is not like building bridges. You've got to rethink it and you've got to adapt to it. So a big upfront plan wouldn't be that much use at that point in time. I think you've given me a new term. I'm now an anarchist against safe because right. I don't like being mandated that this is the way uh, a team should work if they're agile. That's a good term. I'm going to like that one. I would say that Jesus was an anarchist. He was asking for a voice in a system that did not allow peasants to have voices. They were downtrodden. And so there was uh, a movement of people to say, this is not okay anymore. Well, should we summarize, Shane? Okay. So... I liked how you started that when you were working in a team, you didn't like the way you were managed. So when you got into a leadership role, you wanted to fix the way management was happening. So you didn't behave that way with the team you're working with. And I think that's really good insight in terms of the things we don't like that we don't enjoy, we can change. Then you moved on to say, stop doing the things that demotivate us. So if the team's not having fun, there is a problem. If what we're doing is demotivating us, there's something wrong. And if we're in a self-organizing team, it's our responsibility to try and fix it with help from our leadership. But yeah, we got to take the mantle and actually fix those problems. And then you moved into to a term that I loved, which was step into your brilliance. There's nothing more fulfilling than watching a team celebrate their success when it's a true success they've achieved. Mm. It's just so cool to watch. Um, some anti-patterns, you know, nail it down, roll it out. The scenario where the team have created an awesome way of working and the value management office then brings in a BA to write up the agile process without talking to the team so they can roll this agile thing out to the organization because it's been so successful. You know, the team have crafted something that has value and use. Talk to them. Go ask them what they did. Then experiment whether that's got value for other teams or not. And then you talked about, we work in a creative space, we solve problems. And if we're in a, in a software development team, we write code to solve those problems. So, you know, that's why we try and embrace these agile ways of working because solving problems has a large amount of uncertainty and agile helps us deal with that uncertainty. And then back to leadership, it's about creating the environment for the team to be successful. That's your role, not to manage them. Let them just get on with it, create a purpose and a set of boundaries. Yeah, I sometimes do a role as an architect. Yes, as soon as I've done an architecture, I, I hate 
for my baby to be changed because so much uh, thought has gone into it. But change is constant. What we should do as architects is we should set policies or processes or boundaries or guardrails that if the team want to go outside those, we need a conversation. But if they're sitting within those boundaries or those guardrails, get on with it, right? We don't care anymore because you're in a safe space. I like that idea of setting a purpose and then setting boundaries. And, you know, how many times have we sat into a scrum ceremony for planning where nobody's articulated what the goal is? Yeah, it's just straight into, let's have a look at the cards in JIRA. And uh, is that really five points or is it three? So set the goal, right? Set the purpose because that's what we strive to do. And I'll add something to that in terms of Scrum. The, the latest Scrum Guide is the first time that they've really focused on goals in Scrum. There really hasn't been much about that. A little bit about sprint goals, but nothing about product goals. And so it's finally there. Uh, and I think that, you know, will would, would help when people doing Scrum to get that sense of it back again. But you're right, we, we lose that a lot. Yeah, and they don't talk about OKRs, right? They talk about goals and purpose. And to close out, one of the teams I was lucky enough to work with for a while, one of the leaders in that team had this term that I love, and it was called permaculture. So mm. if we let the team alone for a while and we come back in three or six months' time, are those roots still in place? Are they still inspecting and adapting and changing the way they work based on the environment they're in? Is that permaculture in place? And, and you talk about setting the environment and setting that culture. And for me, you know, that's the test. Go back in six months or a year. And although the leadership's changed or the organization's changed, if those teams are still organizing themselves, then we've had quite a large amount of success, right? The permaculture has taken root. So that for me is, is my takeaways. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that, that there's not many good leaders. And I think it's because people don't know how to be good leaders. I like servant leadership a lot as a guide to how to be a good leader. And it is about having compassion, humility, providing a service to others. And I like that the leader provides vision and boundaries. I think though, that there is more to being a manager or a leader than that. For example, Deming says that managers should manage the system of work. So a team of, let's say six to 10 people is just a small part of a whole organizational structure of a whole value stream. And it could be that they're unable to be as effective as they could be because of the system around them. I would like to think that a manager or leader can add a lot of value by helping to improve the system. Now, I think that a lot of that is going to come out of retrospectives. My experience has been that a team can improve themselves a lot, but after about six months, they're going to be telling you in retrospectives that they're being limited by all sorts mm. of other things around them in the organization. Yeah. And I would like managers to pick up those issues and fix them. For example, we can't deploy to production because the organization has set up a production deployment team who make us go through this very long bureaucratic process or design has to be done in a separate design team because that's the way we're set up or we don't have enough people to do everything or somebody else has planned and made a commitment before us. So 
I would like leaders to do a lot of that sort of work in addition. I think they could add a lot of value that way. What do you think? Yeah, that's great. And I, I would concur with that. I think that we need to look at the whole model of management and leadership in a lot more detail. And if we have more time, I'd go into another conversation about a method of using Scrum at the management level for impediment removal. We want to bring people into that way of thinking about work and get away from the, the model that you've described top down. Thank you. Yeah. I find what you're saying very inspirational, Tobias. It gives me hope. You know, as soon as we start remembering that we're all people and there's nothing better than having a good relationship with another human being. There's nothing better than that. And so if we can get that happening, then everything else will fall into place. You know, all these buzzwords and names that we throw around, they all mean nothing if we don't have the basis of a good relationship. So I really uh, encourage people to get into the focus of that again, maybe for the first time, remembering that that's the important thing. Yeah. Thanks very much for coming on, Tobias. It's been great. I've really enjoyed having you on. Yeah, it was a pleasure, Shane and Murray. It really was. I really, I feel like there's a lot we can continue exploring and maybe more, more informally some other time, but lots of great questions there and uh, lots to think about. How can people find you if they want to reach out to you? I'm on LinkedIn, Tobias Mayer. That's quite easy to find. And my, my website is um, tobiasmayer.uk. <laughs> I'm all over the place. And uh, I've always welcomed people to get in touch with me. Uh, it's always great to hear from people. Okay, great. Excellent. Thanks for that. Excellent. Catch you all later. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. All right. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.